Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's my good friend. But you've been somewhere for the past couple of weeks, which is it's kind of a, a shocking story. Uh, are you going to share some of that? Because I told people I wasn't sure because I know it's personal and hits yeah. close to home. No, I think we should talk about it. Um, and it's a good springboard to talk about an important thing. Uh, some resources available to us, but, um, but yeah, it's been, we've been, this is the longest we've been, uh, so, off there, right? Yeah. In four years. Yeah. This is the longest every longest week we've break. met and we've talked to addicts and we've shared the story of hope, uh, and, and, and walked through a lot of doors together. Yeah. And, uh, the, earlier that day, two weeks ago, you said, Hey, can't wait to the podcast. Yeah. I'm really excited. I was. And I was really excited. And then probably two hours later, you sent me something yeah. that was, I mean, shocking. Well, it is. Yeah, let's talk about it because, you know, uh, most of us kind of go about our daily lives and occasionally we get reminded that there's real big problems that happen in people's lives sometimes. And, you know, and so much of the fact that, I mean, I'm my other job is a news reporter, but I'm a feature news reporter. Right. And people often ask me, uh, you know, what do I do for a living? And I go, well, I do all the fluff stuff. I do all the fun stuff. The fun stuff. I never have to report on death and darkness and tragedy and, and stuff that the news is really known for. Right. Uh, and I hear about it all the time. And I usually know what's going on in the state or the surrounding states or even the national news. But when you sent me this, I was like, holy cow. And this made national news eventually, but it was all over the Portland area. So as everyone knows, uh, we're both divorced, yep. right? But uh, and, and I've been divorced for a while now. But one of my favorite people still has been my mother-in-law. Her name was Alice Bolin. And Alice was a wonderful person. And, you know, when you're growing up, you always hear mother-in-law jokes, you know, mm-hmm. and you think it's going to be terrible. And I don't know what those jokes are about because my mother-in-law never gave me a reason to, to do anything but love her. She was a wonderful lady. A fabulous lady. And you were married to your ex-wife for 21 years. 21 years. So I had, a, and I think I, I I met Alice when I was 21. So about four years before I even got married. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this year would be 30 years that I'd known Alice. And very instrumental in uh, your marriage, oh, uh, your fantastic. kids' lives. Yeah. And uh, just that grandma that uh, I was telling you before we came on, um, my son, who's 22, uh, still like all the kids would either go out to her place or she'd come out here. And she lived in the Portland area um, to to spend a birthday week. And at 22, he still wanted to fly out. He went out, luckily, about a month ago to spend a week with his grandma. Not a lot of 22-year-olds no. wanting to celebrate their birthday week with <laughs> their grandma. Spend a whole week with your grandma, right? Yeah. She was that kind of lady. She was wonderful. I think there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 people at her funeral, so people can guess she passed away. But what happened was is that her husband uh, died of cancer about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And they had fa- a couple of friends that were a couple, and that fellow's uh, wife passed away about the same time, I think. And so Alice and this this man, Wayne, uh, got married. And Wayne was 72 and she was 80. She just turned 80. And they'd been married almost a couple of years. And he started to have some kinds of mental health problems. We're not exactly sure what they were um, uh, a, f- a month or two ago, uh, uh, or a little bit earlier in the year. <clears throat> and unfortunately, we got the news that... Uh, that he had murdered her. Wow. He, he strangled her and, and she died that day that uh, you and I were texting about the show. 
And uh, that's not a conjecture, by the way, when he called, he's the one who called 911 and he, there's a voice recording of him In saying Maine. that he killed his wife. And so currently he's, um, you know, awaiting trial. And it's just been uh, a, like living a Dateline story. It's just the strangest, shocking thing. Uh, Alice, for people that are runners, Alice, I don't even know how many marathons and half marathons and things that she ran. Uh, she talked me in, into running the 200-mile hood-to-coast relay race uh, wow. a bunch of years ago. And she and I have ran the Ogden Marathon together several times, along with my kids and my ex-wife. And uh, she used to love to come up here to Utah and run the Ogden Marathon and some of the other races in St. George, where she was from the St. George area originally. And she was beloved up there in Portland. I mean, she did cooking segments weekly. So it was interesting because she was a kind of like you, kind of a feature person that everyone for the last 10 years had gotten to know in Portland because she would come on the local news every month and do a cooking segment. She was a wonderful chef and a brilliant cook. And um, I, I noticed when I watched some of the news stories about her passing that they got choked up because they knew her personally and loved her and it's yeah. affected you your your kids yeah. your ex-wife and well to be honest it's probably just in the last day or two that i would be able to sit here and talk about it because it's just been you know just uh an unreal uh tragic and unnecessary situation obviously as all um, you know murders are they don't need to happen and this woman was healthy i think she probably would have lived to be 100 at least. I mean, she was still at 80, still running every day, 6 a.m. Wow. Yeah, and uh, just a tremendous person. So so our heart goes out to you and your family and everybody that's been well, affected by this. And, you know, she she had a, a, a wonderful network of friends and family, and, and people came from all over the country to attend her memorial. And, and uh, You and the whole family went up there for the funeral. Yeah, we all went there, and uh, it was uh, a horrible reason, but a wonderful experience to reconnect with a lot of that side of the family that I haven't spent much time with since the divorce. But they welcomed me, and, and of course, they're, they're just a wonderful family. They really are. And the reason we're talking about it is because you thought this would be a good way to talk about domestic right. violence, because a lot of times domestic violence goes hand-in-hand hand with addiction. Addiction um, and mental health issues are usually – I had – I started looking up stats and then I got, I realized I was going to be late. So I had to come over here, but, um, the vast majority of domestic violence situations, uh, either involve, uh, some sort of substance abuse or addiction mm -hmm. or, and, or, uh, mental health problems. And then if you want to peel that onion back even a little further, uh, I mean, addiction, you know, goes hand in hand with mental health. Sometimes it's self-medicating. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a result of addiction. And so, I mean, it, it's all intertwined. And so you've yeah. got a number there and you've got some information that we can hand it. If you find yourself in this situation, right? you, you know, there's... And it's such a, a crazy thing in, in our family's situation here because, um, you know, this woman lived such a peaceful, uh, positive life. She really was uh, a friend to so many. So you never know when something can change in your life and you find yourself in a situation that you never thought you'd be in before. And so I did want to take this as an opportunity to remind people that uh, Utah, uh, the we have uh, the um, uh, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, mm -hmm. and I've been on their website the last couple of days thinking about what I talk about, and it's UD 
www.ncvc.org. Uh, and there's just so many resources there. One of the resources is a 24-hour it's a crisis line, but it's also a resource line. They call it the link line. And that number is 1-800-897-LINK, which is 5465. Read that for me. I have my glasses. Did I get 1-800-897-5465. 24-hour crisis line. Look them up at udvc.org. That's the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Yeah, thanks. And... Um, uh, intimate pers- uh, partner violence is kind of the new term, IPV, inter- uh, in- intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot on their website. If you think that in your life or the life of your friends or family there may be some uh, domestic violence going on, I would highly recommend going to their website, looking at their resources. From the top of the state to the bottom of the state, there are many uh, shelters and places that you can go if you need to get away from an abusive uh, partner. And they have the, the addresses and links right there. You can call and they'll have a space for you if you need to get safe. And so I just you know want to take this horrible tragedy in our family's life as an opportunity to spread the word that you don't need to live with domestic violence. Please. Uh, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do it. It's not good for anyone, including the abuser, to be a, to continue to have that opportunity to abuse. And so I would say, please reach out, educate yourself, find the resources, and uh, you know, keep your friends and family safe. This podcast has been designed to help you be prepared for addiction. Uh, and that's what we kind of want to do is prepare people rather than make them react. And in so many times in those situations, you have to react because you weren't prepared. You didn't think this was going there. So knowledge is power here. If you or someone you know might be experiencing something like this, give them this website. Let them take a look at it and see that there are resources out there and there's ways to get you and your family into a safe place while dealing with whatever's going on at home. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Please do that. Well, I'm so glad you're back. I missed you immensely. It's good to be back. I, it's it's uh, it's good to be back in the good routines and be here with you and Josh. I love you guys and I uh, love meeting our new guests that we always have. And it's a it's a bright. This truly is a, a real bright spot in my week. Well, one of my bright spots every day is I get to see this lovely face at the gym. <laughs> this is Cami with a big M, and this is her daughter Kayla. And uh, we yesterday we were talking because I knew she was coming in, uh-huh. and I said, "You know what I am?" And she goes, "What?" I go. I'm a hug dealer. <laughs> I deal in hugs. You know what I mean? Only case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a hope good. dealer. I'm dealing in hope. That's what this podcast is all about. It's not drugs. That's right. Up with the hope, down with the dope, I say. <laughs> uh, I'm hanging out with Cammie and Kayla. And, uh, you know, Cammie reached out to me probably, she says, about a year ago. Yeah. And it was one of those Facebook messages like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't do this. But for some reason, I need to talk to you and I need to figure out what I can do to help with my story. That's wonderful. And so I remember I was waiting for my son a guitar, and I called her up, and I was like, hey. And we just talked for a second, and I said, you know, whenever you're ready to tell your story, it's here for you. And, you know, and then we kind of went dark, huh? Yeah, then it was quiet for a little while, and then I bumped into you at the gym, and... Game on again. So And so then we've been talking uh, quite a bit lately, and I see her at the gym almost every day, and her daughter, Kayla, works the front desk. Oh, and uh, every time she's working, I have my earphones in, I come by, and I just tell her who I'm listening to. Yeah. So it's either like, <laughs> Britney Spears! <laughs> <laughs> Ever Essence! Ever what? Ever Essence? Who is that? 
Evanescence. Evanescence. <laughs> I was just trying to be hip there. Yeah. I butchered that. Fumble. Fumble. <laughs> but I'll recover. Yeah. We will rebuild. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I don't think you should advertise the music you listen to. Really? <laughs> Honestly. I'm pretty sure that's what Kayla thinks, too. Because <laughs> yeah. every time I walk away, she looks at her friend, and they're like, oh. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I'd explain to her who Janet Jackson was, and she just found out Michael Jackson was in the Jackson 5. I don't think you're doing a good job, Sammy. I'm not. I clearly am not. There's some she has historical no things. Yeah. Before we get to your story, uh, I want you to tell everybody real quick, because let me see if I can show Dr. Matt in my phone. Um, This is kind of cool. And this is one of the first introductions I ever got to Cammie. Uh, What does that say right there? Cammie? But what's 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 different about it? <laughs> the M is big. Okay, Cammy with the big M. Okay. So why is it Cammy with the big Cammy M? Because she made me put it in my phone like the that. right way, the correct way. Cammy right. with the big M. Okay. Cammy. So my daughter's name is Michaela, and big C. <laughs> so it had a big M at the beginning, and then a big C because her father's name was Matt, and mine was Cammy. So she asked me when she was learning to write her name, "Why is the C big?" And I said, "Well, it's for Cammy because I'm a part of you too." A couple of days later, I was writing my name, C-A-M-I, and she said, why isn't the M big for Michaela? So I said, oh. you're right. I will make the big M for Michaela. So ever since then, I've just written it big That's for her. That's cute. I, yeah. love that. I love that. A little connection there, yeah. So yeah. we're going to hear Cammie and Kayla, or Michaela's story, coming up next. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, Project Recovery. I am Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Back from, um, you know, it's some tragedy that's happening in your life. Yeah. Um, but what we want to do is keep to be as consistent as we can on the podcast. Uh, well, I think over the last four years, we've done a pretty good job. Two weeks is the longest we've gone with uh, yeah. replays. Yeah, it's been a while. But we wanted to bring out the show in a big way, and so we've got a wonderful guest. Her name is Cammy with this the big M. This is a M. year in the making. Yep, year <laughs> in the making. Well, you know, and which is not uncommon, right? Because I get a lot of people who reach out, and somebody said, "Hey, you should do the podcast," or they want to do the podcast, and there's a there's a vulnerability side to it where they're like, oh, I yeah. don't know if I want to put all my business out there. Uh, that's not lost on me. I I am really impressed with people's willingness uh, to come on and talk about some very personal things in their life. I was thinking about it the other day, and I'm um, coming up on my five-year anniversary of sobriety. All right, yeah. And in that five years, I have met people that I didn't know prior, that didn't know me as an alcoholic, mm-hmm. didn't know me as a party guy. Mm-hmm. And so all they know is sober Casey. All they, oh, you, know, you know what I mean? That's so, weird. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> But but the thing about that, and you know, sometimes I, you know, because I, I share everything. I'm an alcoholic. They're like, yeah. oh, I didn't even ask. Yeah. <laughs> my dad's a drunk. Yeah. That's one of my favorite stories. Yeah. That's my son. You know, yeah. but but I I do it because it helps me. Sure. In the recovery world, they teach us that our secrets keep us sick. And so for me, in the way I work, if I feel like I can get over on you, and I'm pulling one off. There's a little bit of high that goes into that. So I don't like to even have that kind of uh, wiggle room. So I just own it. And doing the podcast and doing the stuff for KSL TV and all that stuff, my story is pretty much out there. Yeah. But we'll have people that want to do the podcast, and then the day before, they're like, ooh, no, I don't think I want to. Which I get. I don't want to put it out there. And I don't know, Cammie, if that was your situation. No. uh, I have been putting it out there from the beginning. I've been pretty, I mean... You'll hear throughout the story, it got out there for everyone anyway. Uh, For me, I've been working in treatment centers, so I'm able to share my story. But this is kind of a different setting. It's different when you're connecting with women, 
face to face, you're able to give something. And I know this is on a bigger scale. I wanted to do it a while back. I did get a little gun shy, but I'm ready today. Okay. So So where does the story of Cami begin? Did you grow up here in Utah? I did grow up here in Utah. Yes. I have a big family. I have five brothers, one sister. I was brought up um, in a very religious culture. Um, I was... I would say one of the black sheep of my family. I started partying at a young age. Where, we, where are you in the uh, the order? Are you the youngest? The so oldest? I have one little brother, but he didn't have the chance. So I'm basically the baby. He's raised a lot of me. You know, he's helped out a lot. So, yeah, I'm kind of the baby in this situation. All older brothers um, and an older sister. When... I started, we moved around a lot. My dad changed jobs a lot as I was a kid. Uh, I was like eighth grade president and straight A's, honor roll. And then we moved to a new school and I didn't have any friends. Mm -hmm. And so the friends that I started connecting with were friends that were a little more wild than I had expected or had any exposure to previously. We started drinking. But that, you know what? That's really not uncommon. I was going to ask, how how old were you when you moved to the school? So that was... That was the first year of high school, so my sophomore year. Okay. And that's, yeah, the, the, if, you, if you can help it, parents, <laughs> not moving your kids when they're in their teen years is really a good idea. I know it's not always possible, right? But the reason for that is sometimes you go from one situation to another and you it's hard to break into the to the social groups. Uh, when you're an adult, that's still disappointing, but not a big deal. But when you're a kid, your social group is part of your developing identity. And so Crucial. it's there are certain kids, the party kids usually, who are usually very welcoming. Well, because the price of admission is just your willingness. Not being judgy and willingness yeah. to party. Yeah. yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. It's like, hey, you go to a new school and you try to break in with the student body officers and they, they, they don't want to share the limelight or they might not be so inviting. But you go yeah. out of the parking lot and the guy goes like, hey, do you want a cigarette? And you're like, yeah. They're like, oh, that guy's cool. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah, it really is. And so that sounds like your situation. You went from being having a core group of friends and, and being – you know, involved. You're a president of your eighth grade. And then what was it like trying to break in at the new school? It was horrific. I mean, there were a few lunch days by myself. I didn't know who to sit with or what to do. I cried a lot. Uh, I knew a few girls from the school, but they weren't very kind to me or they weren't very welcoming to me. And so I got this group of friends and they were rowdy. Yeah. They were rowdy. And so my first drink was my sophomore year in high school. And uh, it progressively throughout high school, partied a lot. On weekends, we drink. I mean, I got kicked out of school once for bringing vodka to school and getting the cheerleaders drunk. Like, it just was a big mess. <laughs> Sounds I like was, something Casey would do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were, I, they I was a mess. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but nobody starts out in high school you're going like, man, I'm going to become an alcoholic no, or I'm no. going to become a drug. No, I think it's that need to no. affiliate, right? Like you, you, to fit like in somewhere you were describing eating friend. lunch alone. Right. I'm 51. That sounds amazing to eat lunch alone. <laughs> no. But when you're 15, <laughs> no. it sounds horrible, yeah. right? It You feel so right. self-conscious. And so you wanted to have that affiliation and connection and, and you want you. So we do what the other kids are doing. Yeah. Right. So Cammy, when you took your first drink as a sophomore, like we've had people sit in the seat where you're sitting right now and said the first time they took a drink, it was life changing. Like so much in the fact that 
They felt they could be the person they always dreamt of. They didn't have the anxiety. You know, when I had my first drink, I didn't have any of those yeah. feelings. It just seemed, I was like, to be honest with you, I just wanted to choke down this beer and see what it was all about. Right. I, I mean, I didn't have any of those anxieties. Yeah. You know, but there's some people who take that first drink and they go, no. It, it, it's, it's like self-medication. Self-medication. No, it was not a game changer for me. Same thing. I choked it down. I thought the beer was disgusting. Something was rotten. Like it wasn't tasting. Like Is this anything. supposed to taste <laughs> tasted. like this? Yeah. Exactly. It's supposed to taste exactly. terrible. And I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. And then coming from a family that was religious, then I had this shame built like, mm-hmm. oh, man. You're drinking when you're supposed to be doing other things. So then I felt really bad about myself. And that's pretty common, Dr. Matt, that how instantaneously that shame can come upon you. One one of the problems with shame is it's not about the decision you made. It's about you. So instead of saying, you know, boy, that was a bad choice to take a drink. I I shouldn't have done that behavior. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad bad person. That is detrimental to a developing ego to the to the self that you want to be is to start thinking of yourself as a bad person at such a young age yes i thought i was a bad person i thought i was damaged i thought that i didn't belong in the culture that i was brought up in so as silly as it sounds many people think they're instantaneously going to hell yes Mm -hmm. yeah you you know i mean i mean yes I'm, i'm in hell now right you know broke the rule yeah yeah and because and which is tragic Right. And it was. And with alcohol being a depressant, I started getting depressed. I started feeling like not only did I not belong, but I didn't feel right. I would try to talk to my mom about the way I was feeling. And my parents did a great job um, raising their family. And I have nothing bad to say about that. But it wasn't an open, open culture where we talked about emotions like we can now. Or like, how are you feeling? Or like, what does that make you feel like? It's more like, you're depressed, let's take you to a doctor and get a pill to fix that because... It's about my pay grade. Exactly. You know, they they did great. My parents were amazing, but they didn't have an open space. They weren't able to hold space for, like, vulnerable emotions because I'm sure they didn't know how to deal with them either. Well, I think that, you know, it's only really now that we have um, an open dialogue about mental health and even now, we still have a lot of stigma with mental health. Right. I work with families all the time where I have to try to destigmatize what their attitudes about things like depression or anxiety are. Um, it's interesting when somebody will say, well, I don't have a family history. We don't have a family history of depression, for example. And I know the right questions to ask. Uh, well, what about this behavior in your family, this behavior? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, those are all depre- signs of depression. What you have is a family like everybody else who who struggles with depression or anxiety or other mental health issues, but no one's talking about it. Right. But instead of blaming, we just want to understand. And you know what? My, my parents' generation also, I don't think they would know they're not equipped to have those conversations. Our parents right. well, grew up nobody with, taught that, yeah. right? We Our parents grew up with John Wayne where you rubbed dirt on it and you <laughs> walked it off and only yeah. only yeah. sissies talked about their feelings. Well, my dad is a, a loving, kind guy, but I, I have several memories of him saying, well, are you bleeding? And I'm like, no. And he's like, okay. Well, that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> like, now I know there's such a thing as internal bleeding, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't talked about. So you get kicked out of high school for getting the cheerleaders drunk. I did. I did, yeah. And after high school, 
the drinking just kind of continued. Uh, that's Did when, your parents know you were drinking during high school? Yeah, I mean, they knew when I got kicked out of high school. They asked. Again, I was the youngest, so they cared, but they were busy. They had five boys playing sports and doing scouts and doing all these other things. Yeah. And so, yeah, they knew, and they were disappointed. They Did let you me feel know a little were, ignored? One hundred percent caboose of the family. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they were tired. They were always there if I needed them, but maybe not in the correct way Mm -hmm. that I needed it. And now knowing that, I mean, I don't place any blame at all on my parents for what I went through. They were a saving grace multiple times throughout the experience. But yes, I mean, there's definitely some trauma built up around the shame from the religion there was some trauma built up around not fitting in with my family members mm-hmm. there was trauma and different things that um feeling ignored feeling less than feeling different i mean they started in high school but just accumulated yeah so you graduate high school mm-hmm. and where's your story go from there so raves were popular you know i went to a few raves i did um cocaine a few times maybe some ecstasy but mostly it was just drinking i got into a few relationships that were less than healthy and uh we drank quite a bit that was the story continuously drinking until i got pregnant i got pregnant when i was 20 years old with Michaela. And that'll be a good time to bring in Michaela because Michaela, it's interesting because I'm listening to your mom's story and she's sharing kind of her childhood and her upbringing. And now she's about to just part of the story where she's three years older than you. And and I, I, I hear her story and then I look at you. What does it feel like to sit here and hear your mom's story? Um, it's hard but also it's like my mom can do anything. Like she came from a really dark place and now she's like the best person I know. That's amazing. Um, and I mean, I think it's hard to picture our parents as not our parents, right? Like, you know, picture your parents as young people that are doing what young people do, sometimes making mistakes. But I think that's really great. Obviously, there have been a lot of opportunities for you to learn about the dark place your mom came from and contrast that now with the person that she's here and she works with other people and and brings so many good things to other people's lives. I bet you're proud of her. Kayla, so I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Um, Parents don't always know what they're doing. (laughs) I mean, it's shocking. You're not supposed to say that. I I know, but it's like my kids, they'll look at me and they're like, you know, you as kids, you think that as parents. They know what to do. We know what we're doing. We don't know. And we just like you were talking about your parents. We only know what we know. And a lot of it we learn from our parents who (laughs) got us where we're at here. You know what I mean? So it's this cycle in this chain. And so that's why it's so good to see you here with your mom because it means that there's going to be a break in that chain. There's going to be some changes, and I'm so glad you're here. So you find out you're pregnant with Michaela. Yes. The drinking slows down. I leave all my friends. Um, I stop drinking while I'm pregnant and probably a year or two after uh, just being with her. And then slowly started dating the wrong people again. Mom will watch her while I go out on a date. Do you think you felt like there was some of, um, because you had her at a pretty young age. I did, yeah. So do you feel like, you know, 
you get a free pass every once in a while because mom's going to watch your daughter. Absolutely. And so you're going to go do what the rest of the 21-year-olds are doing. Absolutely. That's exactly what I did. Mom and my dad loved her, loved her. We were the only ones home now at the time, and uh, they were happy to watch her. So I could go out, drink a little, come home, and get back to the same, you know, being a mom and working. And it wasn't until she was a couple years old that I started getting into some toxic relationships where drinking was the keystone there. We drank... Uh, away from Kayla, we didn't. I didn't ever drink really in front of her when she was little, uh, but I'd leave, go do the drinking, come back. Uh, some of the interesting that we were talking about domestic violence. Some of those relationships got to the point where the drinking was so bad. There were some domestic violence situations where um, it didn't slow it down, though, because not only did I not have a space to talk about it, I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know what to do. So the shame comes back up again, um, you know, from the abuse or the things that had happened, even though I felt like I was the key person in that abuse. Like if I wasn't dating these people or in this situation, I wouldn't be here. So I carried more shame. You blame yourself. I blamed myself yeah. for the whole situation. Yes. And. When Kayla was about five, I married a man who was an incredible father. He had three children, 50-50, and with her having her father absent from our lives, it was really like a game changer for me. I wanted to be with this man because I saw that he was an excellent father. He took Kayla in like she was his own, and it was, you know, he drank every day, uh, probably an alcoholic, but it, it didn't seem bad. It seemed good. It seemed okay. Some people could manage it. Yeah, and, uh, he, and he did. He managed it well. Uh, I was the problem then because I got a, my first DUI in um, 2011, and here we had created this little family with four little kids running around, and I had to blow in a breathalyzer and do I've all done of that. that. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, then, in, I was married to him for three years. In 2014, I got into a bad car accident. Um, and in this car accident, I had to get an MRI. MRI showed that I had bulging discs, herniated discs. I mean, my spine was shot. So they gave me pain pills. Now, is this your first experience with pain pills? Uh, I, I had used them before, like maybe as a party thing for the weekend, but this was my first bottle of my own prescription where I just take it daily and as prescribed. Do you remember what it was that was prescribed? It was Oxycontin. I think they called it Roxy then, but it basically Oxycontin. And, uh, it started out with a couple a day, uh, and I would take it as prescribed you know, and then eventually it wasn't doing exactly what it was doing before, so they'd increase it. They gave me more. And Let me ask you a question. When they prescribed you this Oxycontin mm-hmm. and you took it as prescribed, mm-hmm. now you'd already talked about having your first drink of alcohol and there wasn't some kind of life-changing thing. Was there a life-changing experience with the Oxycontin? Did it do something different? It did. I wouldn't say when I first started taking it. When I first started taking it, I thought I was managing pain. 
but then you kind of have this down crash, right, where you know that next pill will bring you back to where you need to be. Mm -hmm. So I learned that feeling if I take the next pill, I can be okay. If I take the next pill, I could be okay. And then I started doing things like chewing them because they would work faster. And then I started doing things like snorting them because that worked even faster and harder and longer. And I ruined my marriage. Um, because of the pills? Yeah. I mean, there were multiple other things that played in place, but I'll take responsibility that I was a mess. I, I was using my prescription pills wrong. And, and I assume drinking at the same time. Yes. And yeah. drinking. Yeah. And Which is a big no-no. Yeah. I would take Huge two no-no. shots of whiskey every night. To help with my back pain before I went to bed. Isn't it crazy the things we can talk ourselves oh my into? Gosh. Like yeah. justify it. Yeah, justify it. Like, yeah. no, this is going to help my back. My back. No. And I have an MRI to prove it, right? Yeah. So. Probably a picture of it on the fridge. <laughs> yes. In case anybody has questions. Yes. Just point. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so I started getting the euphoria from the pills, I started misusing them often. Um, I started running out, so I would have to buy more. So I would sell and buy. At this point, I ruined my marriage. I got her and I a new apartment in Kaysville. It was a little old ghetto apartment, but it was the only thing I could afford by myself. How old was Kayla at this point? Five. Eight. By the time I left. Five when I got married, eight when I left. Okay. So she was eight years old. We were in this apartment. I was buying and selling these pills. Had your prescription, had they stopped prescribing for you? No. No. Okay. No, they even gave me more. Yeah. I, I manipulated my way into telling the doctors, like, it's working, but not as well as it used to. And then they were like, well, maybe you need something in between pills. So they'd give me, like, a morphine one to put in between the Roxy ones. And it well, was just like kind of... a great idea. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, let, me, let me ask you, but, Kayla. In fairness, they, you know, the, we are, can look back on those times now. We understand better. Right. The, but at the time, you know, docs were just trying to manage pain. And, yes. you know, yes. they were doing the best they could, I think. Right. When you were eight and you moved into the uh, little apartment how vivid are your memories of that um i only have bad memories of that house it's the only thing i remember is bad stuff the reason i ask is because i have kids and uh, about your age and they've gone through some of this and and i've asked i asked them about that you know what do you remember and it's crazy because I know there was some good times, but the bad memories are that's the, what they remember. That's what they remember. Yeah. Well, it's you know, it's family trauma, right? Like we're talking about your addiction, but your addiction is is her addiction. I mean, you know, it's, it's a family disease. It's a family disease, and that's the tragic side, but it's also the solution side. You know. Right. So you're selling in and out of the little apartment. Yes, I am. And this is going on for over a year, going into two years. And I finally decide I'm going to stop. Like, I'm going to stop because I ran out and I didn't have any. And I was so sick, so sick. So I'm like, okay, this cannot cannot be good. So I asked my parents for support. One of my parents took my daughter and the other one would sit with me while I was in full-blown withdrawals. So you're doing it by yourself? I'm doing it by myself oh, and my parents. Dope sick alone. That's yeah. pretty tough. I mean, restless legs, vomiting horrifically, crying. I was in so much pain. I literally thought I was going to die. 
Kayla, you probably know this because you have such a great relationship with your mom, but for our listeners, I mean, we've had people who are, who've gone through withdrawals who said they prayed for death because they didn't want the withdrawals. I mean, it was death, death was a welcoming yeah. thought compared to what they were going to have to go through with withdrawals. And you didn't know at the time, but that's obviously not recommended because it is dangerous. And right. sometimes people uh, can have cardiovascular incidents or And I had no or, idea there yeah. would be people to support me if I had just asked, like professionals or show up somewhere. And again, that's, that's an improvement in our culture that we have more of those and we talk more about them. But going even just, you know, 10, 12 years ago, people didn't know I can reach out. There's a place I can detox. That's a thing. I mean, insurance will cover some of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's insane. So you're detoxing, your parents are tag teaming back and forth, watching your daughter and watching you. Yep. I became very depressed. Um, I had disassociated so much because of the pills over the past couple of years. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't able to hold, be comfortable in social settings. I wasn't able to talk about my feelings. I was a mess. So what was your plan after just going cold turkey? Was your plan just to kind of reintroduce yourself back into society? Or yeah, was there... I mean, I didn't have a plan. My plan was the drugs were the problem, right? So once I remove the drugs, I'll be healed. And that's all I knew. That's That's the extent of what I knew. So I was just trying to remove the drugs. My neighbor at the time, who has now passed, and um, she came to me and said, I hate to see you in so much pain. I hate that you're going through this. And I want to help. And I believe that she truly did want to help. But the only way that she knew how to help was in her own way, and her own way of coping was with drugs. So she offered me, she said, you've been in years of um, downers. Do you want to try uppers? And she had um, cocaine there and some meth there. And I was terrified because I hadn't touched anything like that in so many years. But I was so sick and so vulnerable and so scared. I was like, yeah, I'll try it. I'll try anything. So I tried it, and instantly I could clean the house. I could play with my daughter. I could walk around the block. Like, I'm good. It took away the pain. It took away the vomiting. It took away everything that I was experiencing at the time. And so I I had no idea that my addictions before were minuscule for what I was about to walk into. So I start using uppers. I start using this cocaine and this meth um, occasionally, uh, maybe once a week, twice a week. Um, And then it becomes more frequent, more frequent, more frequent. That's how drugs work. Yeah. So (laughs) I know. Turns out. (laughs) Turns out it's not just a one-time thing. No, no. So I uh, then have a new addiction. Um, my daughter was getting very sick at the time, often. I'd take her to doctors and doctors and doctors and doctors. Nobody knew what was wrong with her. Um, she was very fatigued, very um, ill, and she wanted to spend time getting better at Grandma and Grandpa's house, which at the time I didn't understand because I was trying to do everything I could to keep our little family together. And um, I made the people that own the apartment 
redo the entire apartment complex because I found mold. And I was blaming it on the mold that she was sick. It isn't until five years later that I can now know. I was smoking meth in the house, and the meth was making her sick. No. And so as a mother um, who had a baby at a very young age, the only thing that's ever brought me purpose is being a mother. The only thing that's ever brought me um, peace or the only thing that I knew I was sent to this world to be was a mom. And now that I had failed at that, I couldn't live with myself. Um, This is when I knew the most perfect, the only comfortable option in my soul was suicide. Um, I had made my daughter ill. I had made my parents sick. I had burned every bridge with my family. Um, So the solution was I died. I had a plan in place. I had everything Exactly. Kayla needed to be raised by grandma and grandpa because they could give her something that I could not. So while she was away with grandma and grandpa, back and forth, um, I and mixed in with the wrong people. I got a job making pretty decent money, but these were some crooked people. <laughs> they were, um, it was for a property company, property solutions, and um I knew they weren't great people. I knew that they were probably stealing money. I knew that there was something not right because I was using with them. But they were giving me a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So my plan was to prove my whole family and everyone that knew me wrong. I was going to buy my first house by myself and I was going to do it and I was going to do it right. So I got this house in Pleasant View built from the ground up. It was beautiful. Um, My daughter moved back in with me. This was going to be a fresh start, Um, and she had a friend that had some family issues also, and she wanted needed a place to stay. So I had her and I had her friend living in my home, and because I was making money, I would buy them whatever they wanted, all the food they wanted, everything they wanted, set them up. It was summertime. I'd go work crazy hours and use drugs with these people who were giving me money, but because I had my daughter back, I thought that I was okay. So many times we think we're checking the right box. Yes. My kids got a house. Yes. They've got food. Yes. They've got clothing. They've I'm got functioning. What, whatever they want. Yeah. And I'm doing this mm-hmm. so that they can do that. I mean, yes. once again, it goes back to the justification. Sure. 100%. And, but you, yeah. And I'm assuming you were working through some mom guilt also. by And one of the ways, unfortunate ways that we as parents work through our guilt is spend. Yes. Right? We spend I, that money. Mom guilt is probably understatement of the world. Um, Because I had messed up so badly, the fact that I could give her financial things made me feel like I was doing something. It's tangible. Tangible. Like it's it's proof right there. Proof that I'm being a good mom. Well, I think you said it, you know, about two minutes ago. You were out to prove everybody wrong. Right. Right. I, I mean, my, and doing all the wrong things, all to do the it. wrong things. I had a brother offer to send me to treatment, but I was too in my ego to say I have a problem. I just built a house. I, yeah. What are you talking about? There's no there's there's no problem here. I'm doing all these things. I have my daughter back with me like, no, I'll stop. Now that I ha- I'll stop doing this and I'll stop on my own. Oh, that's the one we tell ourselves. Huh? Yeah. I'll stop. Yeah. So uh, I couldn't stop on my own. 
I had a couple of drug charges. I had a probation officer. I was in an IOP group, and I was fooling the system for months. I was like, I'm going to get off probation, and I'm still going to be using because I'm I can. that good. I'm that good. And that's that's another lie we tell ourselves. <laughs> I remember I was telling somebody, you know, after I got sober and alcohol, he was like, oh, we knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We knew. We knew the whole time. Yeah. yeah. You're the only one that didn't. Everyone everybody around me knew. knew. But you yes. do. You think you get in there, and you yes. think you're smarter than everybody else, or you don't belong in this group of people because you're not like them. Right. And it's not until we can admit to ourselves that we are like them, and there's nothing wrong with them. We're just trying to figure out this whole crazy thing called life. Right. So right. you're in probation, you're working on it. Yes, and uh, it's Christmas time. We have about four Christmas trees up in our cute little house. I have all the presents wrapped under the trees. Um, I have the little girls at home, and I tell her, Mom has an appointment to check in with the PO, and I'll be back. Um, that was when the PO said no more and arrested me. He took me into jail and uh, wouldn't let me make any phone calls, so she was home alone. Um, left alone for I don't even know how long until she got a hold of my mother who came and picked her up that night. She spent the holidays with my family. Um, I spent the holidays in jail. Um, uh, there's quite a few really dark days in my life, and I'll touch on a couple of them, but one of them was waking up Christmas morning in a jail cell. With a daughter that you're not with for the very first time in her whole life. You've messed things up that badly. While I'm in jail, my house gets robbed. And then I get evicted. For not paying because I'm in jail. Uh, My family all go and clean out this house while I'm in jail. And um, I do 62 days. (laughs) And 62 days off of drugs, like, I'm healed. Like, I think in my mind, like, I removed the drugs. Like, now I can get out and start my life over. Like, I'm good. So in jail, I am um, happy to have somewhere safe to be. I'm happy for the food. I'm happy for the sobriety time. And I'm happy to start my life back over. I'm really, like, in a good headspace. The day before I'm supposed to be released, let me back up just a little bit. In that addiction in that Kaysville house, there were rapes, there were sexual assault. I was held at gunpoint on more than one occasion. Um, I had some pretty dark days there. I don't think that even compares to the pain that I felt. The day before I was to be released, a social worker came to the jail and said, while your family cleaned out your apartment, they brought in all the paraphernalia, and you are not allowed to see your daughter when you leave here tomorrow. That is, that's the most pain I've ever felt in my entire life. I had no house, I had no job. I had no daughter. She was at my dad's, and I wasn't allowed to go there. I'd burned all the bridges with my family members. Um, so again, the only solution was suicide. Um, 
this life would be better. This world would be better. My daughter would be better. My family would be better. I cannot. I do not. I am uninterested in a life without being a mom. I am uninterested in a life without Michaela. And so I have this. I get released to the street. (laughs) And I call my mom. And um, I tell her that I'm done. That, uh... Please let Michaela know I tried. Um, thank you for taking care of her. Sorry that I messed things up so badly. She said, you're not even going to try and fight for her. And I said, how? Like, again, we go back to the lack of knowledge of resources. What do you mean? Like, DCFS take your children from you. They don't They don't give you your children back. That's That's not what DCFS does. Like, they removed my child... I don't want to live. Um, I don't. I don't. And she's like, well, maybe you should try. Maybe we, we could make some phone calls and see what we can do. I'm like, Mom, they don't just give you your kids back because your grandma calls and asks for them. Like, that's not the way this works. So the next day, I get a call from social services saying that I could have a visit with my daughter. So I'm like, okay, suicide plan can wait a few more days. I'm going to go have this visit with my daughter. And when I see her, I was just so full of joy and also so crushed that I had ruined things so badly that I had destroyed. It's always been the two of us. And I had destroyed the two of us. The social worker said... If you want these visits to continue, you have to go to treatment. Treatment to me was like celebrity rehab. Like you have to have $100,000 and go somewhere on an island and get better. Like I didn't know that the state would fund treatment. I didn't know that I had options or resources that um, Medicaid would help with. So considering my only other option, I decided, okay, I'll go to treatment. I'll go to treatment, and they promised that I could see her once a week as long as I stayed in treatment. So at the time, it was called WRC. It was Women's Recovery Center. And we I went to treatment there. It was a 90-day program. I got to see her once a week. We were building on our relationship. I was trying to put the pieces back together. I was staying sober and clean. And right before I graduated that 90-day program, I had shared my ibuprofen 800 with a girl who had a toothache, but that was dealing drugs and against the policy. So they made me go do another two-day sanction in jail and then come back and start my program over. So another 90 days? Another 90 days. And for the listener who's not familiar with these sorts of things, that sounds overly strict, but... But from your point, looking back now, why do you looking think that's back now, the I mean, the it's role? safety, right? It's a prescription mm-hmm. drug. And even though I may minimize at the time saying it's ibuprofen, what's the difference of me giving my ibuprofen as opposed to giving my Oxycontin or a prescription drug that's not for someone else? They're to keep people safe. And they were trying to keep me safe in treatment. I just wasn't understanding their logic. Well, yeah, and, and it's <laughs> that justification slippery slope, right? Yeah. So even though... 
ibuprofen is not an abusable drug in the way that Oxycontin is. It's that behavior. Yes. And we know yes. in recovery, one behavior leads to another, leads to another, and it is you a get away with this. slope. Yes. Well, yeah. You get away and, yes. you know, you're and testing so today, the waters. Today it's ibuprofen and yeah. tomorrow it's something else. So yes. it sounds overly harsh, but it it has to be in order 100%. to help it was the a, a right person yeah, get through their addiction. So you go to two-day sanction. Two-day sanction, another 90 days in my program. So now you've been there a half a year. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the first 90 days, I was jumping through all the hoops. I was checking all the boxes. I was doing everything I could to get my daughter back. The second 90 days, it was a powerful thing where I learned to not only love her, but I learned to love me, which was foreign because here I am 35 years old and I had never loved myself or had respect for myself for some of the things that I had been through and some of the things I put myself through. Um, but I, so I know it was God's plan the second time to like, go back, learn your worth, learn your value, do this for you also. So I am so grateful for the rules that were in place in that program. I am so grateful that there were people that were safer than me to say, call me out on my behaviors and say, no, this is not the way it works. Let's try this again. At the time, I wasn't. I tried to pack my bags and leave. I was oh, throwing I a fit. Hot. I was hot. <laughs> At the time, I was not having it. But now looking back, gosh, I wouldn't have made it if there weren't safe people around me keeping those rules intact. So after you graduate the second 90... Where does your story 90. go? So from there, I uh, get Michaela back full time. We move in with my boyfriend, um, who was also facing, he, he wasn't a drug addict, but he was an alcoholic. Um, and he was dealing with his own demons, dealing with his own stuff. But I justified his drinking because we weren't in jail. I wasn't addicted to drugs. I was, I was fine if he drank. Uh, but it became too risky. Those uh, domestic violence situations would come back up. They would start to arise. Uh, it was difficult for me to do intensive therapy and come home with someone with liquor on their breath. Like the communications weren't weren't um, effective. Uh, so I decide that enough's enough, and I got him. I got to move out. So he packed all my stuff and put it in a storage unit. Kayla and I are finally back together with nowhere to live. <laughs> back on couches, slept at a friend's house, slept at dad's house a couple times, didn't know how I was going to do it. Then I get a call from this attorney who told me that after three years, my disability had gone through and they had $18,000 for me. I don't even remember applying for disability. Mm. I was so far in my addiction they had every detail of my life that I had given them, but I don't remember any of it, like none of it. And so I know, again, it was all God watching out for me 100%. So when I got that $18,000, I paid off my court fines. I paid off my eviction. I paid off everything in collections. I was debt-free. I got a little car, and I got us into a little apartment and that's kind of where the healing began. I mean, treatment is where it began, but in real life. Um, I had her back. She was in school. Um, after I finished my IOP program and a few little jobs, I got a job at a treatment center. 
I had to have a year and a half sober prior to doing that, and mm-hmm. I had that. And so once I got that job, um, I started as a house manager, and I was there for three and a half years and just kept working my way up, working my way up, working my way up. And so I got to be in multiple different positions in that job. Uh, she stayed in therapy. I stayed in therapy. Uh, more importantly, we shared quality time together. You know, we talked about buying her off before. This is what it meant to, like, have her back. We could sit on the couch and do homework. We could talk about her broken heart over her boyfriend. We could go get ice cream when she's on her period. I mean, just things that moms and daughters do. So those years were really um, healing and beneficial for us to kind of come back together and start to You're really connecting. Yes. You know, being together is not a connection, right? Right. And no. what do we say about connection on the show? It's it, well, the opposite of addiction is not abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And you've got to find that connection. And you've got to find your people. You've got to find your group. You've got to find those people who believe in you even when you might not believe in yourself. Yes. And people that will want the best for you. Yes. And, and and that's what it is. It, it's connection. Yep. It's it, your story has had me choked up, had me had chills and all that. And I just keep looking at your daughter, and because I've put my kids through through something similar, and that's the toughest thing as a parent. Um, and I say that as a parent because I'm a parent, but I I look at you in your face, and what do you, when you see your mom? What do you see? My best friend, my entire world, just everything. My mom's everything to me. She's an amazing woman. I know. I know. Um, This might be kind of a hard question, but, um, you know, your mom's kind of talking about two periods of time in your life with her. One was at the house where you had a nice house and lots of gifts and presents and, you know, all the food and fun you could stand versus living in the little place and just the two of you connecting and going for ice cream and doing homework. What's the difference in your mind between those two periods of time in your life? Um, so at our apartment in Ogden, I had no idea that my mom was using um, she was just always at work. She was making money. She did her own thing. It was summer. I got to live with my best friend, or my best friend got to live with us. We would go hang out with the neighbors. We would pretty much do whatever we wanted. My mom even took me and five of my best friends to Bear Lake. Like, life was good. I had no idea about my mom. Um, until... My grandpa told me that I was going to stay with him for a while, so we went to the Ogden house so I could get my stuff, and it had been broken into. There were, um, her mattress was flipped upside down, cut open, there were pills everywhere, papers everywhere. I had no idea. I was like, okay, someone broke in, obviously, I don't know what they're looking for, I don't... I had no idea, and um, then when we got um, our newer apartment and we started 
spending more time together and just rebuilding everything. It just, it was completely different. I just, I had my mom back, even though I didn't know about her using until after. But it's completely different feeling. Yeah. It sounds like in the other case, your mom wasn't around as much, but it was fun because there was lots of stuff Mm -hmm. and freedom. But it sounds, I can tell just by how you talk about it, that it's more meaningful, the, the, the second experience of actually connecting and feeling close with your mom. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, back to like the mom guilt or parental guilt, which we all have at times for various things. It's, uh, we forget that, that that's the real deal, that, you know, the real connection between a parent and a child is what the kids really crave and what they really want. The other stuff's fun. You know, if you can get iPads and trips to the lake and all those things are fun, but they're essentially superficial and they don't last, right? Like as you came back to that home and saw it had been ransacked, you you know, those things are not important in the way that connections are. And so that's a special, the best gift your mom, you know, gave you was her sobriety and the connection between the two of you. That's and ice cream special. when you're having your period. Yeah, ice cream. I'm sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, For you're sure. Are you happy your mom brought up your period <laughs> you know I mean? on the show? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I just want to say thank you both for stopping by. And I think your story is going to resonate so much with those out there because here you are and you've been through the darkest days, but you're sitting here next to your best friend, who's also your daughter, and you're sitting here next to your mom. And this is a perfect example of addiction being a family disease. Because when we're in the battle or the throes of addiction, uh, us as addicts think that it's just us. What do you care? This is just me. I'm not making you do drugs. I'm not making you drink alcohol. This is me, and this is what I need to do to get by. I don't know why you have a huge problem with that. It's not until you can look at the tears in your daughter's eyes or read a letter that your daughter wrote that you go, wow, what a selfish son of a I've been because my addiction has affected the whole family. And my only job, and I know what you mean, the only job that I truly cherish and love in this world is that of being a dad. I mean, it's the ultimate job. And I get to be dad to these guys, and I have done horribly. I've done a bad job. Until you, you, the truth is, that's not true. Well, at that point, I was not a good dad. Well, I I know, but you weren't able to maximize your dadness yeah. no, and that, and because that, yeah. of your addiction. And I, I bet you probably feel the same, that, that the desire was always there. And in bits and spurts, you did a great job. But it wasn't until you get sober and you get that junk out of your life that you can maximize your ability to parent That's and be the best. Have him. <laughs> and I know it yeah. sounds kind of cliche, like you don't know how to fully love someone else until you learn to love yourself. Well, until I learned to respect and love myself in my space and keep that clean, I didn't know how to love her fully. Mm -hmm. There's not a day since she's been on this planet that I have not wholeheartedly loved her. I just didn't know how. I was so broken. I didn't know how to take care of me, let alone a child alongside. And, and, you know, my family was there, and they – I burned all those bridges too. But now – 
I'm very close with my family. Now we get to have barbecues on the 4th of July and swim and connect. And, you know, all of them individually have come. And, you know, I've got to make most of my amends. And and for the most part, we're all very connected. And, and the only thing that changed in this family addiction at the time was me. And I think... I was the biggest problem. Well, that's that's a perfect example of... Not you know being sober, not using isn't enough. No, right. And when you when you mentioned your second ninety day, your bonus ninety days. Yes. Um, you talk. That was one of the things you said is that you learned to love yourself. You slowed down and became. I call it introspection. You, you learn to accept yourself for who you are. It's amazing the horrible situations people find themselves in when they don't have self-love. It, it's an unintended but self-destructive drive that sort of takes over in a person's life. When you really love and respect yourself, you find yourself in fewer of those bad situations and you find that you learn, you have a capacity to do good for others that you didn't think you had before. And I think that going back to your story and, and moving and, and drinking at a young age and maybe you know, getting into situations that created shame and guilt for you, there, your ability to really know and love yourself was impeded. And one of the terms in, in therapy as a therapist, which is one of the things I do, uh, a lot of times people will say I'm broken or I feel broken. And I totally get that. I get that feeling and I, I'm not saying they're wrong. What I like to help people do is change their way of thinking about that into the term underdeveloped. I love the idea of being underdeveloped. Now, we can feel broken, and I'm not going to argue with people on that, but if you can shift your thinking to, you know what, maybe I'm not broken, maybe I'm not trash, maybe what I am is underdeveloped, maybe experiences, addictions, abuse, things that were in my life before stopped some of my personal growth and development. Stunted. Yeah. And if I can get into that, if I can catch up on my development in a, important areas of my life, I'll finally be the person that I wanted to be. And I think that ne- second 90 days helped some of your personal development catch up. Yes. And like when you talked about shame, one of the biggest things that I learned was, um, you know, Brene Brown says the difference between shame and guilt. You know, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is... I am something bad and me learning the difference between those mm-hmm. two and mm-hmm. also having support that when I was not able to do it by myself, I didn't realize I could ask for help and knowing yeah. that there were people that would be willing to help, that there's resources out there to get the help um, because I wasn't bad, but I did have a lot of damage that I didn't know how to carry by myself. I, I, that's very well said. What are you doing to help others right now? Cause I know that's something you do. Yes. So I have done a widespread. So I worked at a treatment center for a while. I ran a Davis County addict to athlete chapter for a little while. I taught yoga at multiple different recovery centers for men and for women. Uh, I've spoken to youth groups on mental health. I have worked on my own recovery through constant therapy. Um, nature does a lot for us, does wonders for us. Uh, right now, I am starting with some dear friends of mine to help open up this new recovery center for women in addiction. So I'm super pumped to be on board with that. It's going to be right there in Morgan. Yeah. Can we say that? Yeah. I just did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We love Morgan. We yeah. love Morgan. With, with but, Ryan Brown but, and... Uh, John, John Red. Red. Yeah. Yeah. So think of 
I knew that would be the answer. Listen to all the good stuff that she's doing. Amazing. And that is my, that is, other than your mustache, that's my favorite thing <laughs> yeah, about coming in here every week is because I had no idea. I'm a psychologist. I work here in the community. I don't, I'm not an addiction specialist, psychologist. I do other things. But of course, you work with people, you work with addictions, right? Um, but I had no idea how full our community is of people in recovery doing such great service and so many good things for our community. And that's what I love. That's part of the message I always want to get out every week on the show is you people that are out there that I used to be one of you, no idea there were people doing such great stuff in our community because they've gotten themselves sober, they're in recovery, and they're giving back. And nobody gives back like uh, an addict in recovery. Well, because that's the promise we made. Somebody helped us out. So we'd be selfish of us to keep it. Yeah. So we're going to give it to anybody who's willing and want. Yes. Well, thank you for stopping by and sharing your story today. Uh, Cammie with a big M and uh, (laughs) Michaela with a big C. Uh, Michaela got in trouble the other day at the gym. Yeah? Yeah. Well, was she listening to Britney Spears? (laughs) No. She was actually spent the night hanging with Snoop Dogg and was late to work the next morning. (laughs) Oh, you went to the Snoop Dogg show. Okay. I said, you know what? Snoop Dogg's worth it. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, if if you can say I was hanging with Snoop Dogg, that's why I'm late to work, that that should be a pass. Yeah, right? <laughs> Snoop well, Double O. All the people at the gym That's at 5 a.m. Well, yeah, I was so. with Snoop Dogg, but I got in trouble this morning. He's like, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You hung out with Snoop Dogg last night. What are you complaining for? You're cool. That's well, thank awesome. you very much. If people yes. want to find out more about you, could they follow you on Facebook? Or, yeah, or, or what about the news center? What's it called? The news center is going to be Reprieve. Mm-hmm. The website should be launched here shortly. I won't give an exact date because I don't know. Our open house is August 10th. After that, we plan on opening. Reprieve will be a women's center up in Morgan. So, Love yeah. it. I love it. I'm See glad. Sandal Us Morganites are hard. We, we're slow to change. So I'm glad you guys are bringing some positive change to Morgan County. Me too. It's a I beautiful it. place. Kayla, thank you so much for stopping by and, and sharing your mom's story with us. Of course. You're an amazing young lady. Thank you. Evervescence. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Evanescence. Yeah, I my love favorite it. is when you came in the other day. You're all usher. I can drop it like it's hot. <laughs> well, speaking of dropping it like it's hot, we just dropped another episode of Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Yeah, that's a little John. <laughs> okay, if you say so. Pretty sure it is. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.